Welcome to Learte del Arme, the Bolognese podcast, where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition with the practitioners, translators, authors, and teachers working to bring the art back to life. Today's guest is David Biggs. David is a rector or instructor with the Tattershell School of Defense. David has been practicing Western martial arts for over 25 years and has been studying the work of Giovanni della Gocchia for almost 18 years. He's an active member of the SEA, where he's a member of the White Scarf and the Order of the Laurel, both awarded for knowledge and successful application of historical combat. David has taught hundreds of classes across the US and Canada and has won scores of tournaments across HEMA, Western martial arts, and the SEA. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's it's an honor to have you here because of um, what you've meant to me and my development as a fencer. Um, you were one of the first people to introduce me to a lot of more of the higher level aspects of fencing um, and, and, and classes that I've taken of yours, um, both at Queen's Gambit um, and uh, down at the uh, Surfo, which is the Southeast Renaissance Fencing um, uh, Tournament down in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, so you've always meant a lot to my fencing career. So it really is an honor to have you here. Um, tell me a little bit about your martial arts background um, and how you got started in uh, Western martial arts. Yeah, so um, in college, way, way back, uh, I met a guy who was taking Shotokan karate, and he, he, he talked me into coming and, and, and joining in. And so I did that for about four and a half years, studying various uh, forms in karate, but all in Shotokan. And near the end of my college career, I branched out and did a little bit of Aikido, uh, went to a few judo classes, started throwing a few different things in there just to get uh, different tastes. Um, then I got married and moved down to, uh, Austin and my, my wife at the time was, uh, heavily into the SCA and she was trying to nudge me into going to fencing. And I saw what they were doing, which was all with FAs and foils. And I was like, eh, eh, maybe, eh, eh. But then we met a guy who introduced me to the three Elizabethan fencing manuals and at this stage, I'll jump back in my, in, in my story here. When I was eight years old, I think it was eight or nine, I read a National Geographic where they talked about England. And in, in this National Geographic, they talked about knights and how people are still being made knights these days. And my little nine-year-old brain was like, I wonder who teaches them how to use swords. I want to learn how to use swords. <laughs> So now let's come back to where I'm, you know, I'm 27 years old, um, 26, 27. And I see this book where they actually wrote down in the 16th century, how to do sword play. So then my interest was piqued. Um, and that kind of started my career in the SCA, trying to improve the way the SCA does things. Um, no one was interested in historical sword play. I won't say no one, but very few were interested in historical sword play. Um, a lot of people poo-pooed it as something that wouldn't work. Um, we had to use, at the time, foils and epées because no one thought that uh, heavier blades, which, at, which again, at the time, were the, the schlager, the practice schlager blades, um, were safe. So incrementally, we had to do these things. Um, I was friends with Brian Wilson at, at Darkwood Armory, and he kind of sent me a, a couple of the early Darkwood uh, Del 10 blades, which I then got passed by my kingdom. And then we started being able to use those. And then that grew and eventually overtook the Epe after a few years. 
And in that time period, I, um, oh God, lots of, lots of things happened. Um, I started learning other people were doing this with me. Um, I met the Tattershall guys. Uh, I, I found out that William was translating Capafero. And by that time I had learned that Capafero was kind of what we really wanted to be doing, or at least the manual and the images looked like that's what we should be doing and what the swords we should be using. So it was kind of just all these different paths of trying to, okay, let's first, let's bring the right equipment into it. And then let's see if we can get a hold of some of, some of William's uh, translated bits and start applying them. Uh, and then William and Gary and, uh, and Roger and others were started pushing the idea of side sword in the SCA, which we now know is cut and thrust. Um, and so I jumped on early with that and became a big promoter around, around the United States with that writing rules for various places and demonstrating that it could be safe. Um, and then at some point, uh, 2003, I think, 2004, the SCA corporate bod wanted someone to step in as a deputy to kind of open up the idea of having a historical combat track where it wasn't a martial track. It was based on the arts and sciences, but Basically, they wanted to, to allow the study of any combat form, even if you can't use it legally on the field. So I jumped on that, wrote the rules for that, and was that person for several years trying to drive the idea of studying the historical swordplay for the SCA. And, you know, that, that has had a huge impact. And in fact, you know, uh, everyone in the Western martial arts, Western martial arts workshop and, and all those guys, I met through their workshops, but almost all of them had already started somehow in the SCA earlier. And then they found their love, which was, you know, more historical martial arts and kind of started focusing on that. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what we have has been very influenced by or, or, or branched out of the early idea of whether the SCA had what they wanted or not, you know. So that kind of defines it. After that, I went to law school in 2006, which put an end to my fencing for a while. Um, I actually taught at WMAW in 2007 in the middle of law school, but that, that's when I realized I need to, I need to not do this for a while because it almost killed me. Yeah. Um, and then I went into foreign service, moved up to Ottawa for my first tour, uh, taught for two years in Ottawa, uh, did a little bit of fencing, uh, a little bit of tournaments up there, and then we got thrown out to Ukraine just in time for the Ukraine revolution and for the Russians to invade. So uh, again, that put everything aside for a few more years. So I've had a couple of interruptions where I, I didn't even really have time to study or to, to forward my own skills. So I've had to kind of restart a few times, which I actually think is very valuable, interestingly enough, but we can get to that some other time later on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's immense. I'm, you know, you've you've uh, you've definitely left your imprint on uh, the greater Western martial arts community, um, and it's obvious. Um, and you know, I think when when people hear, especially because I, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here. Even though you're an ardent student of Giovanni della Gocchia, uh, your primary focus is mostly Capoferro um, and rapier, right? Yeah, and, and it's kind of like the Godfather. Um, I've tried to bury myself into the Bolognese side sword a few times, and I keep getting pulled back into rapier by people who, who yeah. really want, want to learn rapier. And I mean, I know it very well, and I'm very good at it, so I don't mind doing it. But 
every once in a while, I'm like, can, can everyone just stop and let me study the Bolognese <laughs> Anonimo for a little while, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I was one of the first to jump on the, the Dalagokie um, once uh, Jurek started really getting into it and translating it and, and Bill. And um, I got through the, 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 the single sword section and realized how it was laid out and I changed the layout and I created a, uh, a drill sheet, which I've spread amongst a lot of people, which kind of opened their eyes. And then instead of reading that big old block of text, they started understanding how it all breaks down. So from then on, what I have done, my approach to the Bolognese is I start with Dalagokie. I start with the single sort of Dalagokie because I think it encompasses everything you really need to know. And then if you want to expand, if you want to embellish a bit, if you want to learn a little bit more about Buckler or whatever, you can go to the other manuals and read a little bit. But once you've gone through the single sort of Dalagokie, you, you know enough to be dangerous on the field and to be able to, to, to defend yourself. So that's kind of what I wanted to do. And that's kind of what I do as, as well as rapier is I will teach you to a certain point and then introduce you to all the things you might want to look at to expand your knowledge. But you really don't need to. You can use those core things and be just as, as effective as anyone on the field. Yeah. And that's kind of, isn't that sort of the framework that you used for your class at Queen's Gambit a few years ago? That, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, that was that was a great class. Um, I loved that. Um, and it, it is it is very practical and applicable. And so the reason why I brought that up, the whole rapier thing, um, is because I think some people will be like, yeah, you know, okay, you know, he studies Delagoke, but his primary focus is Capofero, and why is that important? Um, but one of the things that I want to emphasize in particular, besides the fact that you are studying the Bolognese too, um, is that from, from a Bolognese perspective, if you look at all the single sword plays, of all the Bolognese masters, the first intention of so many of the actions that set up a defense, whether it's uh, Antonio Manciolino, or even if you look at the bulk of Morazzo's plays, everything is a defense against the thrust. So the primary intention that the way that these engagements usually begin, and that's leaving out the Anonimo and Delagoke. I, I personally believe the Anonimo is a little bit later um, just because of the interactions with the blade dynamics and things like that. I don't think quite translates um, to an earlier source um, as some people speculate. But with the, if you look at Delagoke almost as like sort of the sort of descending part of this, this hump, right? That would be the century that Bolognese fencing that we look at, right? We're really looking at the 16th century. And if Dalagoke is kind of on the, the trailing end of that, um, or starting on the trailing end of that, kind of at the higher point, even he talks about how fencing of his day is completely narrow, right? And he's like, this is, you know, people have pretty much done away with wide play. Um, he even goes into this long exposition as to why wide play is still relevant and why it should still be taught. But then if you look at his techniques, even he prefers to use narrow play actions and then says that the point is going to be your primary um, sort of motive, right? You're going to try to thrust um, in some way. He says that's what's best when Lapido asks him about it. Um, but if you look at the earlier sources, like the bulk of Morazzo's techniques, his the most 
text that happens for him with single sword are is is dedicated to defense against the thrust. Every single one of Manchiolino's um, sword alone plays is initiated with a thrust. Um, you know, it's debatable with the last play whether or not that's against a cut, um, but he does say it could be against a Mandrito, a Reverso, or a Stoccata. Um, but um, whether or not it's initiated with the thrust initially, but, but the point of this is is that understanding blade dynamics and how to thrust and how to thrust well is so essential to understanding the Bolognese system, both in developing your interpretations, but in also in understanding why the plays that uh, Marazzo and Manciolino lay out are the way that they are. Because if you have somebody who's just throwing a, a sort of a haphazard thrust at you, you don't necessarily get the same feeling as somebody who's actually approaching and giving you that sense of danger. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was just flipping through Manchelino earlier today. And yeah, I, I mean, I note, so to further define kind of what I do, I tend to dismiss a lot of the very embellished plays. I, I, I'm not a big fan, especially of the Marazzo, um, where, where it's, he's clearly talking about uh, uh, school demonstrations where, you know, you're trying to be flashy. And if you, if you just look at this, the, the feel, the, the, the sharp sword plays, mm -hmm. those are the ones that I really look at in a, in a martial sense, uh, you know, bringing, bringing it back down. And Manchelino, his very first martial uh, Spada de Fio play is against the thrust. It's a, a whole bunch of options you have against your opponent's thrust. Um, and of course, you know, yeah, you're, you're going to cut for his hand, for instance. You know, there's, there's all these different things. But clearly, when you're fighting for your life, when you're fighting with a sharp sword, the thrust was recognized as among the most dangerous things you could do, even then. Yep. But I'll take you one step further. Um, so I'm currently in the process of writing my book, trying to, trying to get my own system down on page. And one of the things I, I did that I haven't done before is I really looked at the, the postures of Fabris, uh, uh, Capoferro and Giganti together. And it struck me very interestingly that when Fabris is describing his, the main uh, uh, postures, he starts off saying, this is what you see in all the schools. This, this is the main posture you'll see in all the schools. But now here's a good version of it. Here's me modifying it. Hmm. Well, the postures he lays out, you can really translate it as a uh, Porta de Ferro Stretto, as, uh, as a Cotolonga Stretto. Basically, it's, it's simply you have kind of a narrow stance. You're sticking your hand out by your right knee-ish, pointing your sword at your opponent. He has a little bit more of a lean to it in, in, in his printed pictures. In his earlier 1601 pictures, they're, they're standing more upright. So I have this argument in my head, and it's, it's more a hypothesis, that what Fabris is saying is all the schools are still basically doing the Bolognese, the, the four Bolognese basic stances that Dalagokie talks about. And here I'm going to improve on them. And then he also talks about the backward leaning stance and he has nothing but praise for it. And that's the one that then uh, uh, Giganti and Capoferro take and make Terza and run with. So in my mind's eye, I'm tracing uh, the primary uh, postures 
that Dalagokie takes and says, these are the runs you really need to know. And I can take that into Fabris and then stretch that out into Capifero and, and move it up until the 18th century. So yeah, it, it's fascinating to see. It really does all blend together. I mean, swordplay is swordplay. Yeah. You, you, will, you will change your swordplay based on the dynamics of the sword you're holding. That is the most important thing that changes your, your swordplay. Uh, so the cuts start going away because the swords get longer. They don't, they aren't, aren't as effective in cutting and it really takes them offline even more when you try to cut, honestly. So that, that did happen, but you can look at the plays, uh, the, the thrust plays in Marazzo, in Mangelino, and you can see them play out in Capafero and in Fabris. Yeah. And, you know, you, you brought up something um, that I, I think is really interesting about uh, Dalagokie and condensing the guards, right? He really only has five principal guards. And, I mean, if you think about it, Cotolonga Strata, Porta de Ferro Strata, um, Gordia de Alicorno, um, and then uh, um, Cotolonga Alta, and then he also has Chingiari Porta de Ferro, which he uses um, in, the, in the provocation section. But, I mean, that is more or less based on the hand positions that he has. He's completely removed all of the Alta guards. Right. Anything that is a, well, a, a larger guard. So um, all the larger guards, all the wide play guards, he's pretty much removed and he's starting to condense it down into what could, you know, we could start to say is this is starting to resemble the Roman system a little bit. Right. And then, you know, with a later source like, um, like uh, Palladini, um, you know, it's, it's a further evolution away from that where he has completely adopted the Roman system. And then every once in a while, when he doesn't know what to call a guard that he wants to sort of hearken back to, like Gordia de Faccia, um, or he still he still uses Larga guards. He uses, he calls it Terza Larga. Um, but it's interesting because it's like he doesn't quite know how to translate this, but he still wants to use it. And these are techniques that he wants to illustrate. Um, and so he just kind of, you know, throws them in there. And it's just like, hey, you know, these are still things. You know, I still like these things. Um, yep. He, um, <clears throat> excuse me, gets rid of all the high guards, teaches the low guards. And now by get rid of, I mean, he doesn't use them as postures. He still goes into Guardia de Testa, right? He still goes into some of the high guards, but, but they're more, this, this, this to me, Dalagokie starts using them more as defenses as opposed to a posture, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, so I remember very clearly, uh, Bill Wilson and others, the first thing they would teach because they were teaching Marazzo was uh, Guardialta, was stick that sword in the air. And I remember thinking, okay, when I'm doing my class, I am not gonna teach that because there's not as many uses for that in, in, in what we're trying to recreate, which is play with sharps. Yep. And, and I remember at one point, I even, I talked with Puck, um, who's been a good friend of mine for years, and he was like, okay, this guy who was standing against me was standing in Guardia Alta. And every time I tried to attack into him, we both died. How do I get around that? And I was like, well, one, don't attack into him. Two, wait him out because his arm's going to get tired after a few minutes. So yeah. whenever someone would, so whenever someone, I, uh, I would know that they learned from Bill like their first time because they would come out against me and they would go straight up in this guard. So I had one of two things I would do. I would stand back and let them get tired. Or if they had a metal gauntlet on, I would do what Manchelino says, which is basically just throw for that wrist. And as that wrist starts coming down, you know, you're going to stop it. 
you're going to break it if it's not protected, but you're also going to stop it. Yeah. So that's when I was like, okay, that guard served a purpose that Dalagokier decided wasn't useful. And I tend to agree with Dalagokier in, in, in that, right? So yeah, you, you can see, and this is why, you know, I base a lot of my, a lot of what I'm trying to do on efficiency. And Dalagokier said, I, I believe if I remember correctly, he said, um, I'm going to show you the guards that you will use the most. That basically, mm -hmm. these are the things that even the teachers who came before me will use the most, if I remember correctly, something along those lines. Yep. But that's that's saying to me that 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 kind of told me this is what I need to start with. Yeah, and, and you know it's interesting too because um, the Anonimo and his his discussion of um, wide play and narrow play and the integration of wide play and narrow play um, in his introduction, uh, which is is really fascinating. And if um, anybody hasn't listened or read it, they they need to go back and and take a look at it because it is um, one of the best strategic and tactical breakdowns that I've seen. Um, but one of the things that he talks about in particular um, is that narrow play is the ultimate goal. Like even when he's talking about wide play, like he talks about what's better and he says, what's better? Is it, it does wide play is wide play better than narrow play? And he's like, no, he, he explicitly states that narrow play will always trump uh, wide play and will be able to counter narrow play. So even in this sort of midpoint where we're starting to transition, at least in my head, to somebody like Dalagokie, um, you have this anonymous writer, this collection of anonymous writers, essentially telling us that narrow play is the the most efficient and, and, and best way to approach the fight. And let, let me blow your mind even more here. Um, make, I, I'm making connections from all of my years of doing this. So there was an interesting kerfluffle many years ago in the early aughts about Saviolo. And uh, Stephen Hand put out a book or put out an article where he was claiming Saviolo was actually doing Spanish. And I disagreed with that. A lot of people disagreed with that. And so I kind of went and started working through myself trying to disprove that. And I've got a paper that I've never published, but it's, it's, it's sitting in my files. I need to someday finish wrapping it up. But my argument was this. Saviolo roamed around Northern Italy and down the uh, Dalmatian coast, according to his own, his own words. Um, he learned from fencing masters, basically in the, the, the Venice, Bolognese, uh, Dalmatian area, okay? So these would all be very well versed in the Bolognese system. And so then I took Salviolo's first book and I documented every single action, but one, there was only one I couldn't document from the Bolognese masters. Everything Salviolo pulls off, he pulls off, it comes straight from the Bolognese masters. But not only that, it comes from the, uh, the Mezzaspada plays, from the half sword plays. Interesting. And in fact, two other things, Saviolo talks about what I'm going to teach you is basically the queen of all of all sword play. And that almost mirrors something that Marazzo says, which when he says, everyone has to learn Mezzaspada because you're going to be here at some point, you're going to yep. have to learn how to do this. And so then you look at Saviolo and you see that first image, which we used to think was just a bad woodprint where their swords are half. And then you start going, oh, 
he was teaching Bolognese half sorting or or mezzospada. Mm-hmm. And now then it all suddenly comes comes to to make sense that Saviola, whether he really was a good master or not, he did know the Bolognese mezzospada, and you can trace everything he does basically back to that. Oh, that's awesome. Well, now I'm gonna have to go read Saviolo. <laughs> I can't vouch for the second book. It's been a long time since I read it. But the first book is what I documented. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to dig into it because that sounds really interesting. That's that's something that I've actually been trying to work on, um, really kind of getting into. Um, so when it when it does come to approaching the fight, um, you know, you just you just gave a fantastic lecture on the anonymous Vienna, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna post a link to that in the uh, in the show notes for everybody to go watch because, um, in my opinion, that was. <laughs> incredible because it, it really in some ways it it kind of shook some things or at least it answered a lot of questions that I've been asking and then at the same time it shook a few things that I was a little uncertain of and just kind of set them back straight and um, I love that and you know if you could just kind of give a, a brief synopsis of um, the general premise of, of what what you kind of um, detailed in the lecture um, just so we can kind of build from there. Cause I think it's really important. Sure, sure, sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled to see that people are reacting so well to it. Cause this, this is, this is a class I kind of just threw together out of my head because it affected me so much. So, I mean, for years, you know, we've taken these manuals and we tried to apply them. And one of the things that Tattershaw is, is, is proud about is that we are a group that is trying to look at things academically, apply them in fights, and then come back and look at how that has affected our, our translations or our um, uh, interpretations. So we've gotten to this point through, I would go watch Gary's classes and, and Bill's classes, and they would watch my classes. And then afterwards we would argue and we would talk and we would beat this through. And I remember specifically the, the, the time I showed up to a, a Western martial arts workshop and, and Bill Wilson was like, I can't believe you've been doing this wrong, but, and this is when he introduced that we shouldn't be standing in a 90 degree stance. We should be opening up our feet to 120 or 130. And then we went through all the manuals and we were like, by God, you're right. And it makes more sense. And suddenly my knee is working and it's not being forced to do something it shouldn't do. Anyway, all that to say, we have taken the parts of these books that, that, that weren't mentioned, that, that the authors glossed over, um, and we have tried to look at how do we fill in these gaps? How, how does my fighting inform these gaps? So along comes uh, these three manuals. The Vienna Anonymous is one of them. And Tom Leone took it and translated it bless his heart, because it was in terrible handwriting, apparently. And um, it verifies a lot of our interpretations. And, and as I mentioned in the class, I, I know a few people who are like, oh, I didn't learn anything from that. And I'm like, but that by itself is amazing. That means we got so many things right that we might not have otherwise gotten right. But mm-hmm. then there are a number of things that have filled in some more gaps for me. Um, and like one of those things is in Capafero, I am trying to draw my opponent to me. I am trying to close into wide measure 
uh, stringer my opponent and make them come to me. And all of the single sword actions assume that you have drawn your opponent to them. Well, what we find, of course, in the SCA and in HEMA is a lot of people don't want to follow that rule. You stringer them and then they, they either back off or they just stay there. And so then what, right? So we've been trying to make up the, what is the then what, and the Fabris people have it, have it better because Fabris does have a plan for, you know, go get them. Well, the Vienna Anonymous fills in that gap for the Capafaro people as well. And it's really the same thing. You incrementally move into them. You, you, you take the advantage and when your opponent shifts, you further that advantage by doing something else. And then they shift again and then you further that advantage until you're close enough to attack them where they cannot parry you. And so what I've done with this lecture is I've kind of gone through and I start off detailing the, a lot of the, the specific actions, like how to gain correctly and how to gain against someone who has a refused guard. And then I end up with, let's put all this together and talk about constantly moving in on your opponent and constantly doing that under protection. And I try, I, I pull a lot of quotes. I didn't, I didn't read them all off in the lecture, but I pull a lot of quotes from Vienna Anonymous where he discusses these things. And so it really is enlightening. And I would actually now say that I don't fight Capafaro. I actually fight Vienna Anonymous because the way I've come across this over the years of tournament fighting really falls into line with what the Vienna Anonymous is saying, uh, as much as it does with Capafaro. Yeah. And so I, 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 one of the things that I thought was incredibly interesting and fascinating is from one anonymous to another, um, I feel like the, having a translation of the anonymous Bolognese has had the same impact on me. Um, and what I found really interesting is it taught me the same lessons. Like I, I feel like a lot of the things that you had touched on were things that I've, I've started to pull out of reading the anonymous Bolognese and they're just things that were never addressed or are addressed in the weirdest places <laughs> in Marazzo or um, I mean, Manchilino has a pretty decent introduction. Um, and I think that that has really been a, a solid framework for a lot of people going forward. The Anonymo takes that and adds probably a few thousand words, you know, and really kind of spells it out yeah. in a way that is really important. Yeah. And I mean, so for instance, in the book that I'm writing, and, and it's it's a, a thrust-oriented uh, rapier book, put that in quotes. Um, the thing I'm trying to point out in, in that and in my class, my 12-week class for Tattershall is the Northern Italian thrust-oriented style um, is best represented by a combination of Giganti, Capafaro, and Fabris. And they all fill in each other's spaces. I would say the same thing about the Bolognese. I would say probably Manchilino, Dallagocchie, and the Anonimo would be, if you look at those three, you've got a, you've got a fairly completely described system, if you look at those three. Um, each one brings something else to it, I believe. Um, I leave out Marazzo because to me, Marazzo is so disorganized and it's so hard to, to suss out some of the things. I will send people to Marazzo once they understand the system and say, go look and have fun. He does a lot of interesting stuff. There's, there's more plays in there you can play with, but I don't recommend anyone try to start with Marazzo um, just because it, he's, like you said, he's all over the place. Yeah. So one of the things that I find really interesting though, um, 
and, and a, an interesting correlation between the two is when I read the anonymous plays, I mean, he's got this, I mean, there are 400 plays, so you could, you could really kind of read whatever you want into how, what his style is or different, the different authors, potentially different authors, what their styles are um, that, that find themselves in that compilation. Um, but if you look at the first 20 plays, um, one of the things that I find is really interesting is the way that the Anonymo approaches the fight is very similar to what you described with how the Vienna Anonymous approaches the fight, where you're coming in, you're essentially, you're coming to wide measure, you're getting a read on your opponent, and you're pressing your advantage, right? And, you know, you see this, and when I talked to Stephen Freitas, um, you know, I asked him what his favorite play was, and he said it was the first play, because he felt like the first play in the Anonimo um, was the perfect summation of everything else that he had read, uh, reading through and working through all some 400 plays of um, of the single sword and and more. But um, and in that play, you know, you approach your opponent and Porta de Ferro Strada, and it says that they will either try to attack you and the tempo of you coming in, or they will retreat, right? And you get this continuation where they go ahead and they try to step back. And then you press the advantage. You keep pressing into them because you've you've stringered them um, coming in in Porta de Ferro Strada, and you've essentially given them one of two options. And they have to react based on your approach. And then that's the anonymous approach the rest of the way through the book. Um, which is really fascinating, especially his use of stringering, um, because he uses that word so much <laughs> when he talks about um, the approach to the fight. And that's his initial approach. Every single time he approaches his opponent, if they're fixed in a guard, he's trying to constrain them in some way where he's forcing them to um, respond in, in a way where he can then um, sort of react. So, okay, so let's talk about that. Um, you sent me some homework. Yep. Um, and you just said something that's interesting that I want to try and break down. So it, can you repeat what you wanted me to address? Yeah. Go ahead. Sure. I'm going to take a second and find it. All right. All right. So I was talking about the Anonimo that I, I thought you would be the perfect person to ask about this, um, mostly because he starts using language that we don't really see um, in other Bolognese authors, um, that we end up seeing a lot in Capoferro and later uh, Rapier Masters. Um, and he has a broad, or perhaps broader, um, than I understood in its utilization concept of uh, string gary. Um, and, you know, in Stephen's translation uh, for ease of reading, he translates stringary to press. Mm -hmm. So um, you're constantly told to press your opponent. Um, and the Anonimo has some situations where your opponent is in a wide guard and you stringer them uh, with something like a falso that doesn't target their arm, but reads like an obligation for them to bring their point online so you can beat and strike with another wide play action. And that defies my assumed understanding of stringary. Okay. Um, but that's how he classifies it. Got it, okay. So to begin with, um, were you working only from Stephen's uh, press version, his, his translated version, or were you look, working from the uh, the original text? Working from Stephen's, yeah. Okay. And so usually, anytime he says press, I read Stringary. Okay. 
So first off, don't do that. Um, I found eight versions of Stringere in the, uh, in the, what I'm trying to say, not the translation, the, uh, the, um, the typed out version. Okay. Hmm. So, so I've, I've got the, I've got the printed version of the Anonimo that was printed out in 2005. And I went through it and I also did a, some, some searching on uh, Stephen's uh, translation. So from what I could find, there are, there are eight places where Stringeri is used. Uh, and there, there's one where the action is used, but he doesn't use the word. So I, now I'll get back to that. So um, let me start by saying not every press in the Bolognese anonymous translation came from the word Stringeri. And this is gonna be very important as we go through this. When you come across the word press, a pressing action in the Freitas translation, it doesn't necessarily mean that it came from Stringeri. Um, I would say probably also in Terminello's translated parts, but I didn't check all of them. I just checked a few of them. Um, there are several other uses of press and pressing that aren't Stringeri. And this is, this is very important uh, because this research you sent me on um, has kind of redefined a little bit what the Stringeri is. And I'm now going to try and, and, and bring it forward and look closer at some of the rapier manuals and see if it still holds true. Um, looking at the transcription of the passage that you sent me, which is uh, Freitas 712, and in the, uh, in the book, it's page 251, number two, Stringeri isn't there, and there isn't any other version of pressing either. Hmm. So I think what Steve did on that one, on number 712, was he ported the idea of the opponent being pressed from a previous action that was referenced. But it's not technically in the text. So I think he says something like, well, you know, seeing that your opponent is pressed, but that references back to where it says, um, do what you did before, or, you know, something along those lines. So that was a translational, a translator's uh, a choice to bring that down. And I'm not going to say he's wrong, but, it, but it's confusing. Um, so let's talk about Stringeri. And I'm going to talk about what I think is going on with the Stringeri and the Bolognese Anonymous. And I'm going to try and walk us to, through there, if you don't mind, for just a few minutes. Yeah. Um, in my current interpretation, based on what, what I've just looked into, the word stringere, at least when used in the Bolognese Anonymous, is used to get across two concepts that are happening. One, you're bringing one thing closer to another, body to body. You are stepping closer to your opponent. So that's one version of press. The other is you're forcing your opponent to act. So we all know you can use a stringer as a provocation. But if you're pressing without the intention to provoke, that's not a stringer. So you might do that when you're pressing the sword toward the earth. Several times in the anonymous, he talks about you're pressing the sword downward, you're pressing it to the earth. Mm -hmm. That use of the word press is a whole different Italian word. And I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll talk about this in a little bit. So you can say, honestly, that stringere means to press in two different concepts to close distance and to compel or coerce like a press gang or pressing into service, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Leone also insisted at one point that stringere is to be viewed as a specialized technical fencing term. Um, but I'm arguing that that may simply be a product of what happens in the action, not necessarily a specialized word. In other words, it may be the case that stringere becomes a technical term because you're fencing, but the common shades of meaning were still inferred in the use of stringere in the fencing manuals. Um, that stringering is used the same way throughout fencing, whether it's describing stringering the body or stringering the sword. Now, it's important to note also the Bolognese Anonymous has no version of stringering the sword in it, unless you count uh, Freitas's 714 on page 252, number one of the original. That may be the first proto sword stringer that I know of, and I, I may get to that again later as well. So, this is full geekery, so pardon me. Modern definition of stringer or stringare is verb to tighten, to squeeze, to clench, to pinch, to press. So that's where we get the word press if you're looking at modern dictionaries. So stringere la mano is to shake hands. Uh, but th- there's also a leftover secondary meaning in there. Um, il tempo stringe means time is pressing, time is running out. So you still, you've, you've still got some version of that kind of pressing in, even in the modern word. But if you look at Florio's 16th and 17th century dictionaries, um, the stringere, stringo, strinzi, stretto, means to bind, to clasp, but also to urge, to force, to constrain, and to provoke. Mm. Uh, uh, so, in the 16th century, stringere had those two meanings, to clasp, to grip, to, to pinch, um, but also to urge, to force, to constrain, to provoke, all right? So Florio bears me out so far in his definition. Um, let's jump ahead about 100 years or so to Capoferro, maybe 80 years, I guess. Um, Capoferro talks about and this is the uh, Jurek Swinger translation. There are two causes for which it's necessary to stringer. The first is stringering the sword in order to seek measure and tempo. The other is to stringer the body and, and it only seeks measure. Um, Jurek has since reworked that to read, there are two reasons for which it's necessary to draw close to the adversary the first is to stringer the sword in order to seek measure, and the other is to draw close to the body. So Jurek recognized that stringering the body means to draw close, but he's wanting to translate stringering the body and stringering the sword as two wholly separate things. And I don't think they are. I think that they are the same thing. I think you're drawing close to the body and you're forcing an action, or you're drawing your sword close to their sword and you're forcing an action. So Right now in my head, as I'm thinking through all the stringering actions and all the manuals I know, this holds out. Um, that stringering means the exact same thing. You're just either acting with your body or you're acting with your sword. Um, I would argue that when you're finding the sword, of course, you are in fact narrowing the distance between the swords. So it is the same action. Um, and I may, I may be babbling on here, so stop me if, I, if, if I'm repeating no, no. myself. Uh, this, yeah. this, this got me very excited. So this, this is very interesting stuff to me. 
The word stringari, at least in the anonymous Bolognese, is only used when those two things are present. Um, I will dig into the into the later manuals, uh, but I could not find a version of it where those two things aren't active. And in fact, looking through Manchelino just a few minutes ago, Tom even calls out one point uh, in, in the first play for the for the Fio. The, the sharp is the word stringer is used, and it's the same action that you find in in the this uh, anonymous Balinese, which is you're going to step toward your opponent but not throw a blow, and that is going to compel them to make an action. Yeah, so that gather into measure essentially yep. is stringing yep. with the body. Yep, exactly. Yeah, that's, and, that's really interesting. And there's a bunch of those. I mean, I, you know, there's. I think six or seven of the eight that I found are all are all say almost exactly the same thing. Um, another note: so when you're stringering the sword, you are finding or gaining the sword, but finding and gaining are not necessarily stringering. I want to also call that out. Um, you know, as you as you saw, I went into some detail about gaining the sword with the Vienna Anonymous. Interestingly enough, I did not find stringering at all mentioned in the Vienna Anonymous, although I didn't read the whole thing. So I do want to go back and see if it's in there. But he does talk about stringering. I mean, he does talk about gaining the sword constantly. He doesn't mention stringering. So I'm wondering if there's a reason for that. Um, but the point being, when you stringer someone's sword, when you're using that word stringere against someone's sword, you are absolutely intending to provoke and not just simply cover the line. It is your intention to make them make an action. Um, in the Bolognese Anonimo, several other words for press and close are used, but they are all used, like I said, without the additional intent. Um, let's see. I'm scanning through my notes. I have lots of notes I took on this, so I'm trying to pick out the most salient things. Um, I've already mentioned, so you're narrowing the distance between you or you're narrowing the distance between your swords. Um, these are all both provocations in that they are compelling your opponent to do something to be stabbed or else be stabbed. So the ideas of press, close the distance and coerce, compel are completely applicable. Applicable. Uh, <laughs> you got me going. I started it. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> But no, so, so here's some interesting, let me keep going with this just for a second. And this, this may be me going beyond the field. Capafero says, when you're stringer the sword, you are seeking measure and tempo. But when you're stringering the body, you are only seeking measure. What does that mean? Well, okay, so seeking, um, the word that is used in Capafero is um, C-E-R-C-A-R-E, -E, either cersare or cursare. I'm not sure, uh, my Italian sucks. Um, so looking at Florio again, that word, cursare, is to seek, but also to require, also to fight, to strive, and to contend. So I may be overthinking it here, but when Capafero talks about seeking measure and seeking the tempo, there's also a note of fighting for it or contending for it. So we're trying to not only take the right tempo and measure from them, we're also, we're, we're forcing them to fight for it. We're forcing them to be in the wrong tempo. Um, so that to me, when he talks about when we are stringering the sword, we are seeking measure. 
it has the same feeling to it. We are stringing the swords, we're compelling them to make an action, and we're seeking the measure, we're making them fight for that measure. We're making them try and contend for that measure. Hmm. So when you try to pin down what stringere means, um, press is fine, but think about press in both senses of the word. Whereas when you see press used like pressing the sword aside, you're not using it in both senses of the word. Yeah, so it's more of when you're thinking about Stringary, so I'm, I'm thinking of just in relation to various plays where this might make sense, right? Like going back to Anonymous first play, it that is more or less what he's doing, right? You're in Ports of Faro, your opponent is in a guard, um, and they they transition to Ports of Faro as they take a step back. So you're kind of constraining their measure as you gather in on them, just like Manchielino does, where you know you're essentially forcing them to try to thrust at you in the tempo of your gather right. as you're coming in, so that way you can close off that line and then proceed and just kind of um, force them into predictable predictable um, reactions. So is there an element of constraining with the guard that's necessary to make the stringering effective? I don't think so. So let me read my translation of the first action here. So first, having the sword alone, you will be able to get comfortable in the Porta de Ferro Stretta with your right foot in front of your enemy, keeping your left foot resting or your left hand resting on your hip or your rump, you know, back on your back. Mm -hmm. In this position, you'll be able to perform a press or stringere by making the left foot push the right foot forward. Without moving to strike, take care not to stand in a wide stance. For more easily pushing, you can go back and forth in your wide stance. And then it skips over and says, since he is so detained, he shall be forced to make a blow. So it specifically says, you're pushing one foot forward with the other, so you're closing distance. You are specifically not attacking and you're not doing anything with your sword that he describes. And yet you are forcing your opponent to make a blow or to back out, right? Mm -hmm. But you are forcing them to make an action. Um, that is the first action. That's the first uh, version of Stringere in the book. Uh, another one, I've got three of them here that I set up for myself. The only, other, the only one that isn't in that very specific vein is, is this one. It's uh, number number 17. Finding yourself comfortable in a coda longa stretta with the right foot in front of your enemy, and he is in a relaxed position. You will press or stringer him in the said guard, making sure that the left foot pushes the right one forward. And in this action, you will make him see a feint to the hips flank. So in this one, in this use of stringere, he is actually throwing a feint but my argument would be a feint is meant for to provoke anyway. So it still fits the pattern of doing something to provoke your opponent. Right. In every other version I saw, you're not throwing a feint. You are using your body. You are using closing distance to make him freak out and have to do something. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm trying to... You, you've got <laughs> you've got my mind going in circles right now mm -hmm, because I'm, mm -hmm. I'm thinking about a lot of different things, and I wanna I wanna play around with a few of these concepts. Like there's a, a play in Palladini that I'm I wanna that I'm thinking about, but yeah, I I, I think this is really interesting. Um, and the interesting thing about it to me is that all of this is predicated on 
measure. Like we, we talk about, you know, I, I hear Devin Borman talk a lot in, in lectures that I've seen him give about putting your opponent in obedience. And, you know, there are certain things that you can control without ever actually coming into co blade contact with your enemy. And, and that's time and measure, right? Like you can, you can control the tempo uh, by constraining a guard or, you know, doing something, um, you know, covering their sword, um, you know, just finding essentially, um, or, you know, now we have stringering, you know, as a constraint of measure and really just making it feel like, oh, this guy's really kind of closing in on me and having some sort of a, a presupposed idea of everything that your opponent can do. And I, I think that's really fascinating, too, about Manchiolino. Um, that actually makes it that small little section where you're just like, why am I stuck in Porta de Ferro the entire time? But the idea is, is that one, Porta de Ferro is such a great defensive guard that you're always going to be able to protect yourself. And you're going to be able to protect yourself in effective ways that gives you a plethora of different attacks, right? So essentially he says, you know, if you're if you're in a fight for your life, assume Porta de Ferro gather in on the person, stringer them. And then these are all of the potential outcomes that can happen. And if you train all of these potential outcomes, these are the responses that you can give. And if you do these things, you're going to survive. Right. And I mean, from my own, from my own tournament fighting, from my own experimentation with this over the years, and I think you saw this probably at Queen's Gambit, the standard guard that I will take against anyone is, uh, either Porto de Ferro Stretto or Cotolonga Stretto. And what I'm going to look for is how their sword is angled at me, and I'm going to do, as Silver would call, the true cross. Mm -hmm. I don't want to line my sword up with theirs because they will slide right past me. So in all of my guards, I'm going to line up with the true cross. And then from there, I can command them by stepping in or by maybe lowering the sword a little bit and, and showing my shoulder, you know, different kinds of invitations. But the most effective one is stepping in and pressing them and making them feel uncomfortable. Then they either have to back the heck out or they have to throw something. Right. And if, if I'm blocking, if I've got even single sword, if I've got that single sword up, I have access to everything I need to do to stop them from hitting me. So, and that's why I think Dalagokia uses those four guards is because if your, your sword is your shield, the single sword, and if it's out in front of you crossing your opponent's blade, which Dalagokia also talks about, um, then you're as safe as you're going to be with single sword. I think that stringering the sword itself didn't really start happening until people started playing more either with the half sword or they started lowering their points at each other more and more and more. So as long as we have our, our points up a little bit, stringering isn't the, the, the thing to really think about so much about. Once you start lowering their, uh, the swords to, at each other, then, as, as Gary Jellick says, then you find that you've created a safe space where you're either forcing them to act or you have a safe space to move in on them. And so then stringing the, stringing the sword adds that third aspect in that's never talked about, and that is the idea of having a safe space in which to act. Because that's not really, that, that doesn't happen to me in the Bolognese Masters. The safe space is you behind your sword, but stringering someone doesn't make it more safe, really. Whereas if you're stringering, stringering the sword in the rapier styles, 
covering their blade and taking away their option, you have now made a safe space for you. So the idea opens up new possibilities when you start talking about with the swords. So one of the things I want to now do is start looking through the manuals and f figure out where can I find the first discussion of a sword on sword stringere? Because that to me is going to be, I mean, just Leary maybe, or does, does Docellini even talk about it? I have no idea. Yeah. So rabbit hole. Yeah, definitely. I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 well, you know, I, one of the things I, I, I thought was really interesting. So when we are talking about finding the sword, um, and this is, this is one of the fundamental things that I, I kind of wanted to get into, um, you know, so now, now that we've kind of established that Stringere is, is a constraint of measure, when you are coming in and you are uh, finding somebody's sword, um, you know, one of the th interesting things about um, your lecture on the Vienna Anonymous was you were talking about how he kind of gives the advice to give that right step out as you're covering over their sword to kind of remove your body um, from from your opponent's sword or the line of your opponent's sword and to make that crossing more dynamic. Right. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that Delagoke actually gives similar advice when he's giving his provocation where you're thrusting with a, a Punta Reversa, but he says you do that right step out and you're kind of thrusting across to try to get them to react. And then you can come back through uh, with a Mandrito Tondo um, or I, I maybe he does he also uh, there's another action in there um but I, I always thought that was really interesting because when i when i looked at giganti in the past and i saw him do something similar um and i know mike had uh sort of been like hey this sounds like giganti <laughs> um and uh i got a kick out of that but I, I, you know, I see something similar in, in, in Dalagoke and I'm wondering, you know, is this, is this something that we should be paying a little bit more attention to? So, I mean, maybe an interesting twist on Dalagoke for me is this. One of the reasons he does that is because Dalagoke plays at a very close measure. Uh, he, he plays at a closer measure than, than I like to. And the reason I say that is if you'll note in all of his single sword sections, his first defense is you draw that back leg to that front leg and you're creating that, that powerful column mm -hmm. to, to catch the blade, for instance, in Guardi de Testa. Um, if you've done that, it's hard to hit them with the sweet spot on the sword unless you're stepping a little bit offline. Um, if, if, if you and I are at a good distance you throw a, a cut, which usually means you're also going to take a slight step. I bring my back foot to my right foot and I stop that with a, with a, a testa. If I then extend and throw that testa, I'm going to hit you closer to the hilt than to the tip, probably. Mm -hmm. um, we, we tend to be at that measure. So a lot of what uh, Dalagokie tends to do is step offline to throw those, those cuts because you're also then going to impact with the good part of the sword. Right. Mm -hmm. So in my school, we kind of cheated. We found that it's really easy to get that leg taken. It's really easy to throw for the shoulder and then just drop the blade and hit the leg. Mm -hmm. So what I started doing in my school was instead of bringing the front, the back leg frontwards, we would bring that front leg back. And that cleared enough space that if someone did do a fake for the leg, they were just out of range. But in order to compensate, we then had to start throwing straight in. 
we then had to take that straight step in order to get on the sweet spot of the sword. So there may be more to Dalagokie than that, but my current interpretation of Dalagokie is one of the reasons he steps offline is because that's the best way to get a good cut on a sword once he's closed into a, the defense that he's gonna throw. And then he's gonna step off to the left and like throw to your head. But to get that sharp edge on your head, he's got to step off to the left and not straight at you. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, you know, so like the anonymous does this too. Um, I haven't quite really settled on a firm interpretation for what I like. And of course, and you know, with COVID and everything like that, I, I haven't really had an opportunity to do a lot of this stuff partnered, but he has a lot of these thrusts where you're initiating with a thrust. And he's, he says that you're thrusting at your opponent's left flank and he does this little half step off to the side. And then he proceeds, um, of course his, his is like, I mean, you're thrusting to their flank. So it's almost like you're, you're trying to just like reach across and, and just kind of shank them from the side. Um, but there is a lot of movement in some of these thrusts and you're just kind of, you know, playing around with these different body elements of just thrusting from different positions and body positions and stuff like that. Um, and maybe because the Bolognese system is a little bit more forward leaning, um, it allows for those actions because um, there isn't as much of a tell as to where the thrust is going to go. Um, you know, whereas if you're, you're kind of using good rapier thrust dynamics, you're going to kind of transition through your thrust um, where sometimes I feel like there's a little bit of gunslinging that goes on with the, the Bolognese thrusts with the Stoccata. Um, yeah, you, I don't know. You but. do you, you did, you do tend to set up closer because a, the shorts are shorter, but also not many Bolognese fighters aim their sword directly at their opponent. They do angle them up a bit. So you do have a narrower measure between the two of you. I think when you're, when, when I'm, when I'm fighting Bolognese, I'm generally setting up at a range that for rapier, I would consider gunslating. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. that's one of the things I want to fix because <laughs> that's, that's something that I've, I've really been trying to focus on um, looking at like the, the discussions of measure and things like that and how to approach. And I, I think, and again, this is something where the anonymous really kind of opened my eyes a little bit more to uh, sort of the approach of the fight all the way through, you know, when the anonymous gives something that's very similar to what Palladini says, um, you know, and, and Palladini lays it out as, um, let's see, I got the quote here. Um, there it is. Um, okay. So Palladini says, knowing that you cannot attack your enemy with technique and advantage without knowledge of measure, I undertake to explain um, what I understand of it insofar as I'm able. Having advanced to within two or three steps of him, remaining sufficiently covered against any attack he might attempt, you can exercise your judgment to determine the spot where you may attack. You should approach until you see that by extending your arm and stepping with your right foot, you may wound him, either with a point or with a cut, depending on the opportunity and situation. This is termed the mesura de frere, and you must practice this measure many times in order to seize it when needed, since you cannot use a compass when you're fighting against your enemies in disputes. Um, and so the interesting thing that I find about this is, you know, one attack planning. Um, so Palladini lays out his attack planning as you're approaching this edge of measure, um, varying your guard, not 
you know, communicating your intention. And I think this is something that you had touched on with the, uh, the Vienna anonymous that I thought was really interesting is the idea of varying your guard, right? Like setting up that chess match. You're not trying to, you know, just if you walk in on somebody and you're in Porta de Ferrestretta and you don't vary your guard and your opponent is an experienced fencer, then they're going to know exactly what you can do and what they can do to you. Right. For, from a general sense, they should know those things. So varying your guard provides some level of variability as to, you know, what they can potentially do. They can't quite get a read on what your intention is. So, you know, if you come in and you're hanging out in larger guards and then you suddenly close down and you go into a Porta de Ferro strata and that's how you then begin your approach, then you might startle your opponent. You might even catch them in a guard where you have an advantage because of the placement of your sword. And so, so I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so what I was going to say is I, I think it's interesting that he sets up this chess match, but it's all predicated on measure and the approach of measure coming from outside of wide measure and then transitioning um, and sort of really kind of pressing the fight from that idea of transitioning guards to the point where, you know, essentially what he calls the Missouri de Freire. Um, I'm, I know I'm pronouncing that horribly. Um, somebody is just cringing in Italian right now. Um, <laughs> but uh, which is almost like the point of no return. Like this is the point where you've committed. And from that point forward, uh, you are you're pressing your attack however you designed it is the way that uh, Palladini essentially lays it out. And I think that we see that, um, you know, discussed throughout all the Bolognese authors. All of them talk about varying the guard, but also pressing the attack once you get to a specific point. Um, and I, I find that really interesting. But that to me shows that perhaps there's more of, yeah, you are kind of getting in closer. Like you do want to close to that strata range in order to sort of really press your attack. Um, but there is sort of that interplay that happens beforehand that we really need to kind of get figured out and start integrating into our fencing. So, yeah, I, I take that and I agree. Um, one of the things when you sent me your, your slides, I was reading through them. One of the things I disagree with and this may be a product of, uh, I'm working mainly from Spada de Fia. Um, and Dalagoke also doesn't, doesn't ever talk about doing this. And that is altering your guard constantly while you're coming in on your opponent so that they don't know what you're doing. The way I handle that is I don't take guard until I'm in range. I will, I will saunter up to my opponent, sword by my side, I know my measure well enough that as soon as I get into where they can hit me, then I'm going into whatever guard is most uh, uh, appropriate, depending on how they're standing. Mm. So I don't give them something to play off of until I am in range. Then if we're going to do it to be in an anonymous way, I am going to immediately throw, try to make them make some motion and then rearrange my throw into something else and just start opening them up. So it's still very viable. The whole idea is still viable. But I think the quotes that you sent me on continue to vary your guard as you're moving into measure, that sounds much more like that uh, fighting with blunts and trying to be flashy thing than it does what I might do with sharps. 
And I, I say that because in several tournaments where I fought people who are constantly moving, what they're doing is they're giving me their tempo over and over and over again. And I don't have to worry about them until they're in measure. Yeah. So I, I think you might've misunderstood that a little bit because I think that that, that happens until you take that, like, so when, when Paladini's talking about two to three steps, right. Um, he's talking about essentially changing your guard from the third step, second step, you take that very last step and now you're at the edge of measure. And once you're at the edge of measure, you stop varying your guard. And that's what I mean, like you're committed, right? But you still have one more step after that. There's still a fourth step that happens from that step right there where you are in measure with your opponent. The next step that you take is where you get to the Mesura de Ferrere. And that, in those two steps, there's no more varying of guard because then you're giving a tempo, right? And Delagoke talks about that. And, and that's what's interesting about what Delagoke talks about because he says that uh, when he's talking about the tempos, he actually says, if you find yourself changing your guard when you're in measure, this is how you can get out of it. Like if you if you screw up and you change your guard when you're in measure, then just go ahead and take a step back and throw a trauma zone. Right. right. And so he, I think that, and and that's that's one of the things where I kind of piece that together where he's he's kind of giving us the same general idea and that's where i kind of take walking in the guards and say okay so this is how i'm i'm moving right as as my body position is moving as i'm taking steps if i if i'm naturally going to be taking two or three steps towards my opponent i'm still going to want to put myself in a, in a strong defensive position or at least some way where i can and hold myself in account um one to not one to communicate to my opponent that I'm also a experienced fencer, but two, um, just in case they decide to just rush in on me, you know, I, I'm, I'm treating it like, you know, this is something where at any moment they could do something that's unexpected and I'm, I'm not taking any chance on that. And so as I'm walking in and I'm approaching measure, I'm going to go ahead and start setting up that chess match. So if I see that my opponent is just going to stay fixed in a guard, then that's perfectly fine with me. If they change their guard at the last minute, then I can always step out. I can always step out of measure because I have, until I take that step where I'm now in measure, I ha I can still change guard. I've got about a half step, maybe an accrescimento step into what would be a wide measure range where I can still effectively change guard, but it's still dangerous. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of how I perceive it. I'm, I'm, I'm open to seeing that. So far, everyone I've seen attempt that, I would chalk up to what Dalagokie calls an injudicious use of guards. You know, and, and this is how you face someone who injudiciously changes from guard to guard. Um, because someone who is changing, someone stepping in on me who's changing guards two or three times, they are giving me the tempo of their actions because they always end up doing it dump, 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 and that's how fast they have now trained themselves into thinking at that speed. And so all I've got to do is wait for when they cross measure, and then I know what their next action probably is and in what tempo. Because if they go, for instance, from a high to a low to you know maybe a side guard, I'm pretty sure that this area here now is where I have to worry about their sword coming. So if I have their tempo nailed down, I'm going to avoid the sword coming to this side and I'm going to now shoot for this side because they've given me their tempo and they've given me their, 
their their range of actions. Um, I would love for someone to show me a better version of that because right now I'm not convinced it was for use with the sharp sword. I think it was for use with the with the blunts. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because it's it's advice, it's general advice that's given by both the Anonimo and Manchilino. And then um, I can't remember where uh, Marazzo put it. I can't, I don't remember if I put that in my notes or not. But I, you know, I mean, one of the things that the Anonimo says, and Manchilino kind of echoes this, is the reason that you would do that is because the way that and again going kind of going back to paladini um is you don't want to communicate your intention right oh, sure. yeah, like yeah. you're saying like if i were to if i were to change my guard as i take that last step and now i'm in measure right which is just and the way that i i define measure in my mind is it's the point where the tips of our swords just barely cross right like that's my sort of my visual cue is now we're we're in measure Right. And that's where I can take one step and I can probably hit you in the hand. So if I step in to measure and now I assume, you know, Porta de Ferro and you're kind of fixed in a guard, then from that point forward, like you have to make an instant read on whatever guard it is that I take as I step into to take measure. And at that point, I've already designed whatever it is that I'm going to come in on you as. So then I've got the mental advantage that. I see what guard you're in. I go ahead and take that step into measure. Let's say I go into Porta de Ferro Strata and I, I give you some sort of a constraint on your sword. I know now that because I've already made up my mind, you know, a step behind that I'm going to come in and now you have to react in some way. So I know as I take that next step, I already know what my tactical intention is and that's the guard that I'm taking. And then I'm pressing my advantage knowing that you can only do a certain number of things based on me going ahead and stepping into measure and whatever advantages that gives me based on what guard I'm in and then what guard you're in. Right, now let me modify that. So, so that, that is a good tactic to play with. And let me, let me say two things about it. One, you don't want to then hit with first intention. You want your chess game to continue because whatever you're throwing at them, they are in a still tempo. They are in a stale tempo and they have the advantage if you're throwing something at them right then. So what you're needing to do is get, getting them to move. You need to get them to do some movement that isn't an attack at you and then that opens up your target. So as you think through your chess game and, and you've got to think through it fast, if I come on guard, in a good strata and I see I am crossing over and you've got an open chest, that chest is not gonna be my final target. That chest is gonna be what I'm gonna shoot for first to get you to start defending it, then maybe cut for the head, for instance, okay? So that's one part of that is don't think that you're gonna get that first intention shot. But the second thing is, as several of the masters point out, every guard is the beginning and ending of a cut. Basically, you're cutting from one guard to the next. So if I just watch the pattern of your cut, as soon as you step into measure, I've got a decent idea of what's, what you're able to do at that point as well. Mm. You know, if, if you step into measure and you have cut up into Alicorno, um, I now have a good range once you immediately step into measure of where your blade is going to come down on me. So you've also given me like I said, kind of your rhythm and you've narrowed what your possibilities are at me as well. 
So you have to make sure that you are thinking two or three steps ahead of me at that point in time. You can't rely on that changing of guards to confuse me. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a viable action. I'm just, I'm not convinced it's, well, this is stupid to say. I'm not convinced it's infallible. Of course, nothing's infallible, but I, I, I'd like to see it used well. I haven't seen it used well yet. Yeah, and and that'll be my challenge. <laughs> I'll yeah. I'll see if I can if I can use it well to to prove it or disprove it. I mean, it's it's what I've been working on, but I mean, I think the interesting thing is a lot of this stems from the way that the Anonimo approaches the fight. Because in the situation that I provided, if I were to come in on Porta de Ferro Strata, and I was to essentially get a crossing on your sword, I'm expecting that you're going to go ahead and probably do a Sfalsada, right? That's typically what the way that he lays out his plays. They'll do a Sfalsada underneath your sword, and then you beat the sword in the tempo of their Sfalsada, and then you step with your left foot and you stab him, right? right? And so that's, that's kind of one of his favorite things, and he has like a hundred different ways of how he sets that up. Um, but that's kind of that's kind of what I'm I'm thinking of in terms of like stepping in, you know, really kind of trying to use stringary um, crossing and things like that to set up, you know, get that sort of tactical advantage as I'm coming in and forcing you to take a tempo that I can exploit to create a bigger tempo and then come in and strike. Um, so yeah. Not necessarily a like, uh, you know, like a changing of the guard in in terms of like creating some sort of a. I mean, I guess it will look kind of showy in terms of like the the constant changing, but trying to get you to a point or move you to a point um, where I know that I can create that predictable response. Right. Um, yeah. I just and and so again, when I think through a lot of my tactics. I have to recognize that several of my tactics will, will work against 80% of the fighters, but it's that 20% that I have to really be wary of. So for instance, as you were closing on me, if you and I are fighting, probably what would happen is I would have my buckler kind of casually held out and my sword would be pointed at the ground right up until you just about stepped into measure because I'm also not going to give you what I want to do, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to wait to see what your pattern is and then see if I can then dominate that pattern. So stepping in against some of, some of the, the more experienced fighters, you may find that, that you're not faking them out. You're not drawing them out. So then my question to you would be, and this is not to talk about now, but what would you do then is kind of the next thing to, to think through. Yeah. So I actually, I have an answer to that, right? Cool, cool. And so so the Anonimo actually gives an answer to that because, you know, he gives the, the perfect summation of, of this sort of tactical approach and how to go about it. And he says, also, you must know that if you find your enemy in a wide guard, then you will use your art to bring his sword into presence. If he has his sword in presence, then you must, by, by means of fainting, make him put his sword into a wide guard that allows you to then control the line, the Drita Via, um, such that his sword will point away from your person and off to the side of your body, and then you will you will then be able to perform whatever actions you wish. So he kind of he elaborates on that a little bit in talking about how um, when he talks about wide play, and so again, kind of going back to that discussion that he has of the wide play and narrow play um, and how they integrate with one another. He says, if your opponent is in a wide guard, you should start in wide play 
and then transition to narrow play. And if your opponent is in a narrow guard, you should start in wide play and then transition to, um, or excuse me, you should start with, uh, so if your opponent is in a narrow guard, you should start with wide actions and right. then uh, um, eventually transition into narrow actions. Or no, he says approach narrow and then go wide. That's what it is. Sorry. Got that backwards. Yeah. So essentially you're going to come in on them in a narrow guard if they're in a narrow guard. And then you're going to probably do something like step out and throw like a false to their hand or something like that, right? To counter them. So, you know, when you were talking about attacking people coming at you in Gordy Alta and essentially cutting down at you and you're sitting there thinking, all right, well, if you're going to do that, I'm just going to cut to your hand. You know, that's kind of the the similar idea of just kind of like using narrow play to counter wide play. And, uh, and I, I think that's, you know, you, you actually brought up a really interesting example of that when you were talking about the Vienna anonymous, um, cause doesn't he, he, you were talking about when, um, your opponent has their, they essentially have their sword down and offline. Um, yeah, and then yeah. he was talking about pointing at the, the hand. You point at the hand. Yeah. You, you force them to choose a side on which to come up on. And the simple act of choosing the side is giving you a tempo in which to act and, rolling your sword to protect against that action is is takes no time at all um but i would also so so here's the other interesting thing about that whole concept this is something that i was doing tactically in the early early days when the only thing we had was a little bit of dalagoki and, and a little bit of marazzo um when i was fighting uh my friends and this i think this specifically worked against people who were rapier fighters and who were just now picking up cut and thrust but I would go out against them and we would set up and I would start throwing, you know, uh, cuts to the ribs, cuts to the head. And I would, I'd be working what I call the outside aura, you know, the outside beta. And then once I got them really parrying hard on the outside, I would go for a straight thrust. And my comment to them was always like, don't forget we can thrust because <laughs> they would, they would be so stressed out about having to block all the cuts because they're good at thrusting, but they're not good at cutting. And then I would own that center line because what I've done is open them up, right? And then the opposite of that, people who are throwing the cuts, well, the best way to block those cuts is with a nice strong thrust, a nice strong keeping that sword up in your way to stop that thing coming down and then you hit them. So these were kind of organic tactics that we came up with um, early on and to see them echoed in the, in the, uh, the Bolognese Anonymous is, is, is lovely, is lots of fun. But yeah, um, anytime someone's point goes out of your Vita, uh, the thing to do is point yours at them and, and move in effectively almost at all times. And that's, I think all the rapier manuals say that. So it's not shocking to me that, that the Bolognese masters would also be, be uh, pointing that out too. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think that's, it's just interesting. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about that and, and trying to like flush out the tactical concepts and what they're really kind of going for. Um, and like I said, the anonymous is you know a gift in that it it really is um, you know helps to spell a lot of this stuff out to to make it so it's more practical and and more understandable than <laughs> you know Marazzo and his his craziness that he has you know, stuffed away in, in book three. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. E even then though, I mean, I do like everything I've read from the anonymous so far. Um, but even he, he starts getting repetitive. And one of the things, one of the things I want to talk about at some point 
is the idea of, of I've said this before, the inductive versus deductive approach to swordplay. Mm -hmm. And one of the problems I have right now, it's hard for me to read through some of the new manuals that are coming out because I see the same actions that I already know. And it's like, okay, I already know this. I already understand this. Um, there comes a point where you've learned enough of the basics. You've learned enough of the tactics that you don't need the extra plays that Morazzo throws at you. You don't need 700 plays from the Vienna Anonymous. You can start making up your own plays. Mm -hmm. And basically that's all they're doing is they're like, well, here's another example of how to use this tactic. And here's another example of how to use this tactic, right? So it's interesting to me when I see people on Facebook and whatever digging down deep into each tactic, into each play and really trying to tear it apart but I'm like, I think you're missing the forest for the trees when you do that. You know, when you're really trying to, to suss out exactly how the foot lands and exactly how, you know, this play works. To me, it's like you're paying too much attention to the details and you're not getting the tactics that are involved in the details. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually, so I think I was, I, I've, definitely been guilty of that in the past and um one of the things that really kind of opened my eyes to that was um listening to roland warcheka talk about his experience with developing his interpretations yeah um, and the way that he approached it is essentially sussing out what what it was that they're trying to teach you from each of the plays so go to the play, figure out what it is that they're trying to teach you and then apply what it is that they're trying to teach you into like actually into your fencing. Right. Yep. And so, and I, I think that's kind of what you're getting at here. Um, and so I actually, I took that and I took that into Manchiliano's sword and large buckler um, because I like his large buckler. Um, just like you, when I, when I look at the Bolognese sources, I'd like to look for, are they using sharp swords or not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's one reason why right now um, I'm actually I'm I'm a little frustrated with uh, with two-handed sword Murata's two-handed sword, and uh, I just don't. I, I've I've looked at a lot of people and their interpretations of Murata's two-handed sword, and I've gone back and I've looked at it myself, and the fact that it is an assaulty really kind of shows me that this might have just been for show yeah. and it might have just been play fighting and when i look at it and i i see people are trying to apply to Morazzo's two-handed sword viable techniques from fiore from vadi from the kdf system but they're literally skewing Morazzo's words to fit those systems yeah. instead of just seeing it for what it is, which is probably this was just done for show. Yeah. And that frustrates me a little bit. However, looking at Manchilino's uh, sword and large buckler, um, and I, I know that's going to tick some people off, but that's just where I'm at right now. Um, looking at his sword and large buckler, it is done with a sharp sword. Um, he specifically says that it's done with a sharp sword. And they're really fascinating because, you know, when he's fighting with a, a small buckler, a lot of times there is a lot more um, showing and a lot of 
uh, sort of wide guards and very big actions and things like that. But then you look at his his large buckler techniques when you're fighting with a, a sharp sword and everything is very concise, very tight. Um, he gives you multiple different reactions to what ends up happening with your opponent. And a lot of times you can kind of see it. So I, I read through those plays and I decided to take the first five plays. I actually wrote this up in a blog post and I broke them down. And I, I broke him down into what is their intention? Why is he doing this this way, right? Um, and it was one of the most rewarding things that I've ever done. Um, and I love those plays. And now those are kind of like my go-to. I can kind of default to those things because I know that, you know, these are, these are plays that um, I kind of have a, a better framework or understanding of what the intention is. Yeah, so you brought up, two interesting points to me. Um, I'm sketching them out real quick. Um, it's interesting from a, uh, from a historical point, it is interesting to me that the masters included these flashy uh, uh, assaltos and, and especially, I mean, the, what is it? The, the parade of guards and that kind of thing. Um, it tells me that what I said during the Vienna Anonymous talk is kind of spot on, that a good, skilled sword play, sword fight is kind of boring to watch. You yes. know, uh, you and I fight, and if I've got the better of you, it's over in a second and a half. That's not very exciting. So what Morazzo was doing was kind of like, I want to attract more people. I'm going to attract more customers. We're going to make this flashier. We're going to hit our own bucklers we're gonna you know that kind of thing so that by itself is an interesting thing to note that when they get serious with the sharp swords it becomes more efficient it becomes tighter it's it's a faster fight it's you know i can appreciate it a lot more than the person watching can appreciate it um but the other thing you you mentioned which i'm trying to do a lot i built my 12-week rapier class on this um I take them through several weeks of the mechanics of, of the mechanics of movements with, with swords and, and that. Then we introduce the plates and we go through several weeks of working through a lot of the plates. And then if I'm going to continue that, if I'm going to go to like an 18 or, or 20 week class, what I would start doing is what Kaya mentions in one of her books, which is adding chaos. Mm -hmm. And that is how you test whether you understand that action. Well, you, Okay, you understand how this thing, how this works. What if the opponent doesn't do what you thought they were going to do? Are you learning from that plate well enough that you can then react to that thing? And that to me is how you start digging down into what is this plate really telling me? Is this plate telling me that, you know, that this particular tempo is important? Is this plate telling me that um, I draw my opponent out and this is how I twist his arm to, to take the sword away from him? You know, what is it I'm learning? And I think that that's a very good point. I think a lot of people work through the plates more like dances and yeah. less like learning possibilities. Yep. No, that, that was, um, I think, you know, uh, I've, Chris and I have both read Kai's book. And um, one of the things that I think has both been most rewarding for the way that we develop our um, techniques from Morazzo and for other Bolognese authors is that we, we started doing that, you know, like, we're like, all right, let's work through the play, you know, work through the play as if it is like, we're following it step by step. And then I'll, I'll come in and then we'll get to a point where we feel comfortable with the play. And then he'll say, okay, 
now do whatever you can to hit me right whatever it is don't don't follow the the b side that we came up with the play just give me everything you got try to hit me right and and see if we can break the play down and if it works like if it, if we feel like we're still sufficiently protecting ourselves and we'll we'll continue on um but yeah no that's um sage advice i love that and and that's what tournaments are actually good for this is one of the reasons that tattershall yeah. like likes to throw tournaments into the mix is i can train my students to fight against each other and you know if if i come up against someone who knows Dalagokie or Maratso or, or, or Capafero, I know how to fight them generally. I, I, you know, we, we both know how to fight each other. It gets squirrely when I fight someone who is self-trained and has no idea how to actually use a sword. Mm -hmm. um, so that's when you start testing how well do I know tempo? How well do I know measure? You know, they're not going to play by my rules. So I've got to beat them and stay alive at the same time. So I suggest that to everyone. Um, and I'll again quote from Puck, uh, we start our students out in a world of artifice and then slowly start cutting away that artifice to get to the real life. And that's what you're doing. You're adding in the unpredictable moments that, that bring in the, the real life once you can do the artifice very cleanly and very well. <clears throat> yeah, you know, so that actually brings me something really interesting. Um, one of my favorite breakdowns of because I, th I think it speaks to something that you just said and, and really confirms that um, from just, you know, some historical guy saying exactly what you just said. <laughs> Not that you're wrong, um, but to, to validate it with, uh, you know, historical evidence here. Um, but Levino um, actually gives really great advice as to what to do when you're fighting an unexperienced fencer. Um, like I know, is it is it Giganti that says that you should just go out after you've been training in the cell or is it Dociolini? Um somebody says that you should essentially once you've been training in the cell you should go out and you just you should start fighting people that you've never fought before um and and random and i think he even says to fight untrained people okay interesting now i've got versions of that but i haven't heard that one that might be Dochelini. yeah so but taking that advice um and and speaking to that in Levino, Levino's advice is that when you're fighting in somebody who you've never fought before um, he says that you should really only use beats and constraining cuts um, until you see their skill. And once you see their skill, then you can start using Sfalsada and Cavazione, yeah. and you can start doing some of the more skillful actions. But in, if you try to use those skillful actions against somebody who's unpredictable, then there's a really good chance that they're going to do something that's stupid <laughs> and they're going to hit you. Yeah, and that, that's one one of the one of the stories I have is I I fought a guy. And this is years ago at at a war, and yeah, I was doing that. I was kind of thrusting at his hands. I was beating his blade a little bit at, at measure, until I figured out kind of how he was moving and what he was doing, and then I killed him. And walking off the field, he was like, "Oh, I kept you away from me for a really long time." <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, that's what sure. happened." Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, I mean, so you've got Capafero who says to be a perfect player, you need to play people better than you. And then you've got, you know, Manchelino who says, don't let your students go fight anyone else for a while, for the first several days of their practice, at least. So yeah, you've got all this great, interesting advice that people should just start listening to, honestly. 
Yeah, no, seriously. And, you know, I mean, even even in the KDF system, I mean, if you if you think about the, the overall concept of what Spreckfenster is, you know, essentially you're throwing your point into the center line because they say that Spreckfenster is more or less long point. You're just throwing your point into the center line to get a read on what your opponent's going to do, you know, and it's the same same general basic advice. And I think that that's something, again, you know, if, if people were really kind of looking at things and and kind of like you said trying to read into these things and actually understand what they're trying to do you know a lot of it is trying to get that read on your opponent and not necessarily you know doing something that is um you know potentially harmful to you which is you know assuming that your opponent is going to do something um versus forcing your opponent to do something and there's right. a difference and and yeah and like i said in the vienna anonymous lecture was um don't throw don't do a full attack at wide measure because i mean in capoferro terms when you're using you know a, a 42 inch 44 inch rapier um you're attacking into their stillness and you're doing it with a one and a half tempo movement so all they have to do is take a half step backwards and you've now lost your reach and so you can play people at that wide measure and see whether A, they understand that rule, B, whether they understand their own measure at all, and C, start getting a feel for how fast they're moving. You know, Do they have any dialed in actions? The, one, the ones I love are the ones that I'll throw for their hand and they will immediately do, do, do a huge circle. You know, And immediately I peg in my head, that is a dialed in action that that person cannot control. So all I have to do is faint down the middle close enough to that blade where they start that twist and just go around it and go in. And I know that I'm safe at that point in time. So playing at measure, playing at, at, at wide measure with all variety of things, you're safe enough that you just take that step out. And this you know, counts in, in cut and thrust as well, but you can still draw them out. The dangerous fencers are the ones that just don't react to anything you do because they're yep. pretty confident in what they're doing. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So I think we're, we're getting pretty close to time. And one of the things that I want to kind of wrap up with um, and talk about real quick is Lord Baltimore's challenge, because um, if there is a seminal event that everybody needs to at some point go and attend, um, especially if they're interested in the bull system, um, it is Lord Baltimore's challenge. Um, because one, you bring the best instructors from around the world. And two, um, it's some of the best fighting that I've ever experienced um, in any tournament when it comes to fighting with a single-handed sword, whether it was a, with a rapier uh, or with a side sword or even sword and buckler. Um, some of the highest level competition that I've ever experienced. So tell me a little bit about Lord Baltimore's challenge. So, yeah, um, and that's that's a great compliment. That's, that's fantastic. Um, Lord Baltimore's challenge, I mean, the germ, the germ of it happened years and years and years ago when we were starting Side Sword in the SCA. And then uh, a guy got in charge of SCA combat and he canceled it. And he said, you can't do Side Sword, it's too dangerous. At that point, the thought in my head was, I can hold my own damn tournaments and you can't do anything about this. So carry that forward to uh, when I got back from Ukraine, 
I went to a few HEMA events and watched them. HEMA, HEMA kind of grew up while I was in, in, in Ottawa and Ukraine. I didn't, I didn't really watch it happening, but when I got back, it was fully fledged. There were lots of events that had been going on. I had known about swordfish, but I didn't know about the rest of the things. Um, so I watched a few HEMA events and I started noting there's a lot of things they can learn from the SCA and Conversely, there's a lot of things that we could port into the SCA from the HEMA events that I like. So I started thinking about, I should, I should do my own event. I should just throw together my own rule set, my own event that takes the best from both worlds. Um, I liked, I like the idea of being judged, but I also like the idea of self-call. So let's put those together in a way that works. Um, I don't, I don't buy into the idea that people who self-call are cheating. I think that that's, that's, pretty ridiculous and a good ring director should be able to shut that down in a heartbeat. So I kind of dismissed that offhand. Um, but what I wanted to do also was I noted that there were no real rapier events on the East coast and there was no real side sword events in the East coast. You had Queens Gambit, you had Surfo, and that was the closest at the time that we got. This is back in 2016, I think, or 17, when I was looking into all this. And so I wanted to create, I wanted to push my, my, the, the weapons I love, you know, the rapier and the, and the side sword. So this is how this sprung up. And of course, because of my history, I know most of the very long-term skilled instructors uh, around. So my first thing was, well, can I get the people I want to do this crazy idea I have, which is I want people to teach on one day and then those same very skilled people to be the ring directors on the next day. Mm -hmm. uh, and so here we go. So I, I roped in a bunch of, uh, of long-term SCAers who are very good at events, at putting together events and running them and making sure they come off smoothly. So my, my crew is amazing and they're the reason this, that it's all, this all comes together. Um, and then from there is all kind of just downhill, writing the rule set, making sure it, it is what I want it to be. Um, I did a little bit of a change from year one to year two on the rule set, but really it was largely already there. Um, and the biggest problem I have right now is if it grows anymore, I'm gonna have to limit people who can come because we have a limited number of judges and directors we can pull from uh, which I think is one of the problems that I see in HEMA events is that they start pulling from people who don't know what they're doing and it becomes a, a, a really bad situation for everyone. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to limit it down to where I'm not going to pull people in who are directing who don't know what they're doing. And I really don't want to pull in judges either who don't really have an idea what they're doing. Um, so we're kind of limited in how much, in how much, what I'm trying to say, how much volume we, we, we can, we can command. Um, but all that said, we may actually grab MLK day in January. So the next one may be January, 2022, which is what, like seven months away or eight months away, which freaks me out a bit, but <laughs> yeah, it's coming fast. Yeah. It's, it's, it's going to be here, but instead of summer, we may actually uh, grab the MLK in January um, because DC open isn't going to be happening anymore from what I can understand. And we might, we may take that spot. Yeah. Uh, so I've got four good instructors lined up, um, add a couple extra people and I've got six or seven good directors lined up. 
uh, we're going to use all the same rule sets. I may make the, the decision to put one tournament on Friday night and then the other three on Saturday because those four in a row were, are, are a long, long day. It was long. Yeah, it was brutal. Yeah. But a lot of fun at the same time. I'm not, <laughs> I, I fought in all four and I, I had a blast. So, yeah. It's cool. It's, it's interesting. And, and the first year was really cool because we had um, the SCA dominated all the rapier stuff, but HEMA dominated all the sword buckler stuff. And then it got a little more mixed the second year. Um, and it's interesting to see the comments and complaints we get off the survey. We get a lot of people who are like, oh, my God, um, I thought the SCA couldn't fight and they kicked my butt. Or, man, I thought HEMA guys were all egotistical, but they're great. And so you've got this cross blood going on. Um, I get a few HEMA, HEMA fighters who are like, oh, I hated that first blood tournament. That sucks. And it's not even first blood. It's first kill. You know, it's, it's, it's one and yeah. done, as I call it. Um, and I guess, of course, my response is one, we're trying to reenact a more realistic fight. Mm -hmm. Two, you had four fights in your pool. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I mean, yeah. five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's, there's a lot, of, there's a lot going on there. Um, and I mean, I'll tell a quick story going back to my earlier days. Um, there was a, a Western martial arts event that also included, uh, 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 like fight directors and it was called ISMAC and it happened in Lansing, Michigan. And ISMAC is where one of the very first, not the first, but one of the first uh, um, Western martial arts rapier tournaments happened. And it was put on by Martinez and he brought together four other maestros to be judges. So it was, he was, he was kind of being ring director and then there was one at each corner and we fought in this and this was classical fencing rules, but with rapiers. So as we fought, there were, there were several of us from the SCA and the rest of them were from Martinez's school and from other Western martial arts stuff. Those of us from the SCA, because we weren't told not to, um, we took the blows that the judges called against us, but we also would call our own blows if they missed anything. And at first it really, it freaked the judges out. They were like, what, what what's going on? Um, I was fighting Brian Wilson at one point and he hit me in the hand and I backed up and held my hand up and Martinez stepped forward and he said, is everything okay? I was like, yeah, he, he hit my hand. Yeah, give him a point. So yeah. this was like, you know, they're like, okay. So, so they, they fell into the groove of this, of, of some of us calling our own blows. And one of us, uh, James, a friend of mine, wanted to call back a blow that was awarded to him. He said, no, I didn't hit him. And the judges were like, shut up, take the points. Um, but the next year at the next Lansing, uh, Martinez made a speech and he said, last year's tournament was the most honorable and interesting I've ever directed. And I hope to see that again. And so, and we did it again. So I wanted to bring that same feel where you can have judging, but you can also have people calling blows that the judges missed and yeah. it can, it can work seamlessly. There's no reason it cannot work seamlessly. And I think it enhances things. Yeah. And, and Devin said something really interesting. He said, what he looks for is two points of agreement, whether that's him and one of his judges or one of his judges and one of the fighters. If one of the fighters says he hit me and the judge says, yeah, I saw it. Then Devin's like, even if I didn't see it, I'll call it because that's two points of agreement that, that I'm looking for. That's interesting. Well, you know, that's actually, so even for HEMA people, 
that might, and maybe this is, maybe we do need, uh, you know, judging classes and, and some sort of a, like, you know, like a pre-tournament <laughs> judging class for those who are going to be judging. Um, but maybe we can get Devin to write a book on that because that's, that's really, yeah, looking for two points of, of agreement. And that, I mean, that, that would be up more up to like a ring boss than it would be uh, to, to a judge specifically, but um, still, um, you know, a judge making a blind call and then the ring boss having that frame of mind. But like you said, when you have experienced people, who are managing the ring, who are watching what the, the, the fighters are doing, that the fighters respect, that brings everything together. And then, of course, you know, working from the honor code and having people call their, their you know, their hits and, you know, if you get hit, things like that. I mean, I've, I've had people <laughs> fighting people before where I've called a hit and they're like, oh, are you okay? Did I hurt you? Because, you know, I like, I'll like, right. just like tap my chest and they're like, oh, what's, what's wrong? Why is this guy touching himself? <laughs> like, no, you, you hit me right here. It's, but it's yeah. And, and there's two aspects to that. I mean, one, yes, the honor part, the, uh, yeah, people and, and John Drake was saying, and John's the one who won rapier both ears. And John was saying, you know, and I, I agree with this. I want to be the best one on the field. I don't want to just win the fight. If someone hits me, I didn't win the fight, so I'm not the best one on the field. And he's like, I want to get better enough that that I can recognize that dude beat me or I beat him. So there's that aspect of it there. It's it's a matter of improving your own skill as opposed to simply winning the fight. That's one right. thing. But the second thing is a good director needs to be able to replay fights in his head. Uh, David Koblenz is one of the ones I love watching doing this. He will see the fight, he'll look up, and he'll replay what just happened in his head, and then he'll start talking through it. And he will make both fencers look like experts. Okay, fencer A uh, did a first intention attack to fencer B, who did a parry. Fencer A then did a cavatione and gained the blade of fencer B and struck. And, you know, both fencers are like, is that what happened? You know, <laughs> but David has been doing this long enough that he can think through and back the fight up in his head. Yep. And this to me is the skill of an expert fencer is when you can take a step back from your own fight and replay what all happened and then step forward again. And that's what I look for in directors. They have to be able to know how to do that. And part of that is having thrown the same thrusts thousands of times so that you know how it played out and you know all the options. You don't have to have seen everything but I can see that he did this and he ended up like this and he had gained his opponent's blade in order for that to happen. These other things had to happen for instance. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, and, and yeah, to, to get to your, your training point, um, my it guy, Brian and I have been talking about for a couple of years, putting online a judge training, uh, system online somehow but we haven't we haven't gotten to it uh, we really need to and we've got a few people who are like let's do it let's do it let's do it so hopefully sponsored by tattershall or lord baltimore's we will have some kind of a judging training uh, program online in the next year or two hopefully we'll see yeah that'd be awesome yeah you know i mean one of the things that you just touched on too um for those who missed last year uh uh one of Guy Windsor's classes was actually how to develop that framework of uh, sort of remembering your fights 
and uh, sort of creating that mental pathway so that way you can start self-checking yourself and, and go down that process of, of development. Um, so, yeah, it, that's it what really, I mean. It you really literally, helps. I, I, like, I can't speak enough to the fact that you literally do have world-class teachers every single time you hold this tournament. Like, last last time that you had Lord Baltimore's challenge was Guy Windsor, Mike Pendergast, um, Devin Borman, and who else was there? I think, did we have, we didn't bring David back. Who did we bring back? Um, we had Puck and David and Kevin the first year, along with Devin. And last year was, uh, we had... Uh, Jonathan McKenzie Gordon. That's who it was. Yeah, Jonathan McKenzie Gordon was the other one. Yeah, and we also had oh, we had one more though. I think. Who else we had? Anyway, but yeah, yeah, and 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 Guy last year. So Guy, admittedly, he he doesn't like tournaments. And as I drove him to the train station, he turned to me and he said, "I'm coming back next year. You know that, right?" <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "All right, fool <laughs> me, Guy." But yeah, um, and that's one of the things I also want to stress on on your podcast here is one of the ways to get to being able that to to do those things to be able to recall your fights is to train and understand tactics the people who can't recall their fights are natural athletic fighters but they haven't thought through and really they don't plan their fights out Mm -hmm. so you know one of the things i i try to point out to students early on is it's not about speed it's about knowing where they're going And if I'm telling my opponent where to go, I can easily block it quickly. It's not that I'm faster than them. It's that I knew it was happening. But following that process of learning also makes you be able to then think through fights because you understand the tactical choices being made. And so I can't stress that enough. One of the reasons to, to understand the lessons you're learning in these plates and in these plays is that the tactics are what you're getting out of them, whether you know it or not. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so you said um, hopefully, hopefully uh, we're gonna do. You're gonna do it MLK uh, Junior Weekend uh, next year, right? So that should be the twenty first. I think so. That that is the plan. Yeah, late late January. Um, I think I have a venue. I know I have instructors. So it's just a matter of now, kind of getting the ball rolling. Perfect. Well, look forward to it, David. Uh, Look forward to seeing you again. Um, But with that, let's go ahead and wrap it up. Um, Thanks for coming on and uh, and sharing your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. This is this was fun. You made me dig for something I hadn't thought about much before. So, yeah, appreciate that. Hey, if you dig a little bit deeper and you find anything you want to talk about, you're always welcome to come back on. We can uh, we can definitely talk about it. We'll do. It might be about rapiers, but we'll do. Hey, that's okay. I'm I'm down. All right. Have a good night. Take it easy. Thanks. Bye. And that concludes another episode of Le Arte dell'Arme, the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank David again uh, for that insightful conversation. Um, I'll put some links uh, to Lord Baltimore's challenge and uh, Devin Borman and Guy Windsor's reviews of Dev- of uh, Lord Baltimore's challenge in the show notes. So you guys can check those out and also a link to David's YouTube channel where he goes through and teaches Capafero and uh, some of the other uh, things, including the lecture on the uh, anonymous Vienna. Next week's guest is going to be uh, Dario Alberto Magnani. 
some of you might better know him as Thok, um, or at least from his branding. Uh, we're going to talk about the upcoming Weapon Masters Gauntlet and uh, all of its features, its limitations, and how it compares to other five-finger gloves on the market. Um, but we're also going to get into some, uh, some, some fencing, because Dario is also a brilliant uh, fencing mind, and I'm going to pick his brain a little bit, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, two-handed sword, um, ranging from Fiore to Vadi, um, and how we can relate that into um, understanding and studying Marazzo. So definitely check that out. It's going to be a great podcast, and um, it's going to be, it's a long one, but uh, it's going to have a lot of really great information. So stay tuned for that, and stay saucy, my friends.